brothers and sisters uh, in Haiti in prayer. But like I said, we've all been affected with, with uh, the images that we've seen. And some of the lasting pictures in my mind as I think about it are, are the rescue efforts. When, uh, when rescuers can hear, you know, they can hear some noises or sometimes they can even see the faces of people caught in the wreckage. But those people are unable to free themselves. And uh, we've seen a few heroic stories when the obstacles were removed and when, when people were actually rescued. And I was reading today that there's only been, I think in a, it's in the hundreds, the number of people that they've been able to rescue while many more have, have not been rescued. Um, but we see the, the images of those people that, uh, that do in fact get res- rescued and, and we rejoice with that. But I shudder to think of how many didn't make it because they were unable to be reached and unable to be freed from the, from the obstacles that would lead to life for them. So these pictures kind of tug on our hearts. But as we look at Zechariah today, and as I was studying it this week, I had some of those images with the, with the passage that I read, that pastor read here especially, that these pictures illustrate the fact that we too need to have obstacles removed, obstacles that threaten to keep us, for us, for what is eternal life, and from realizing the the impending expectations of our future hope, that future hope that we just sang about. So turn to the book of Zechariah this morning, and I hope you've benefited as we've uh, gone through this series. These are some books that we don't probably regularly look at, and we don't, some of them, the meaning is a little bit obscure, so I hope some of that's been cleared up for you as we've, uh, as we've gone through this series. But Zechariah has 14 chapters, and it's really impossible to cover all all 14 chapters in one series. And so I just want to give you a quick snapshot today of the book before we look a little deeper at just one of those chapters. Zechariah comes on the scene probably about exactly the same time as Haggai, who we studied last week, and probably just maybe a couple of months later. And so if you were here last week, the, the background is exactly the same. And so I don't need to go through that again. But this all happens in 520 BC. So it happens after the exiles come back to Israel, come back to Jerusalem particularly, to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah is writing to encourage the people to keep going after the temple rebuilding project had ground to a halt. Haggai, last week we learned, motivated the people by challenging them in regard to their priorities. Well, Zechariah's motivation is a little bit different. His motivation is the hope for their future, the impending expectation. Zechariah is replete, filled with all sorts of promises for the future of Jerusalem and Israel. God tells him throughout this book, I will do this or I will do that. It's filled with future references. And all of those future promises are meant to tell the the exiles exactly that. That in spite of the fact that they had one time turned away from God and, and that they had turned away from his promises which led to their exile in the first place, In spite of all that, God is faithful. There is still hope. He's saying, you just return to me. You you obey me, and I will work things out. But that brings up one interesting feature of Zechariah. And that, that, that is that there isn't a whole lot in this book that are instructions for us. There's not a lot of do this and do that. It's an an important feature of this book is that it tells us what, what God will do. Not so much what we're supposed to do, but what God will do. It's a good reminder that we need God to be at work if 
we want to receive any of the blessings that he has promised. We continually mess up. We continually go the opposite way. We, we naturally go the opposite way. And so we need God to do something to, to rescue us, to rescue us from that path of, of self-destruction that we're on. And once he reveals himself, once he clears the way, then we have a responsibility to return and to obey. In many ways, Zechariah is a bit of a strange book. The entire first half of the book is made up of a bunch of bizarre, really, visions. Eight of them in chapters 1 to 6. Visions of different colored horses or of men with tape measures, of, of angels, of horns, of craftsmen, of flying scrolls. This is for real. Of a woman in a basket. And somebody, one of the one of my fellow pastors wrote me this week, he said, don't preach about the woman in the basket or be very careful if you do because the name of the woman is wickedness and you, you might want to stay away from that. But the point of all those visions is to encourage the people to keep obeying God even though the promises are in the future. You see that in the last verse of chapter 6 especially. He promises that the, that the temple will be built and then he says it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. And then from chapter 7 to 14, the book is a bit more conventional. There's no more of these strange signs, but the point is the same. The Lord is still with you, and in his timing, all his purposes will come to fruition. And Zechariah is a reminder that even though it might not look like it now, that God remains committed to his people. There's still hope for God's people. God promises to do something good for you. Chapter 88, verse 15, has the best summary of Zechariah. He says, God is quoted there as saying, I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. That's the message of God to his people. And that's a bit of a summary of the book. But the question for us, just from that summary, is how can we be sure we are God's people? How can we be sure that these promises of the future are for us? So that's the question I want to kind of try and answer today, but not just yet. I need to say something about interpreting a book like this. A number of us, I think even from here, went to see Fiddler on the Roof yesterday, and they have all sorts of interesting interpretations of, uh, of the Old Testament there. So I thought it'd be probably good to, to say something about how you interpret a book like this, because all these promises are for Israel. If you look at it closely, all these promises are for the nation of Israel. They're for God's chosen people. God's chosen people have a future is what Zechariah is all about. But God's chosen people in the Old Testament is Israel. So can we rightly apply these promises to us? Do these promises apply in any way to Gentiles, which is what all of us are? So let me just make a few affirmations about that. The first one is that since these promises were for Israel, I believe God does have a future for Israel. Some interpreters, they, they'll, they'll look at the New Testament and they'll say that the church has replaced Israel. And so whatever God promised to Israel now just gets transferred to the church, to believers. Israel, they say, rejected the promises and so they don't get them anymore. But I don't think it's quite that simple. Yes, we know that Israel rejected the Messiah. Yes, they've been cut off 
But Romans 11 explains that this, is, this cutting off is just temporary. It talks about them being partially hardened, but it also says that all Israel will be saved. And so on that basis, I think these promises of Zechariah will be fulfilled to Israel. But while these promises are for Israel, the New Testament says that for us who are not ethnic Israel, we become partners in the promises to Israel too. The New Testament teaches that over and over again. Here are just two examples. Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, in other words, if you are a Christian, then you are Abraham's descendants. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to promise. In other words, if you believe in Christ, if you have repented of your sins, and if you've uh, trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are included in the descendants of Abraham. And the promises of Israel are now yours as well. So Israel goes there from being defined ethnically to being defined spiritually. And it is important that we also become part of spiritual Israel. You are a descendant of Abraham through not ethnicity, but through faith. The other verse is in Ephesians. Paul spends a, a good chunk of Ephesians, especially chapters 1 to 3, explaining that Jews and Christ-believing Gentiles shouldn't be thought of separately anymore. They are one. There's just one term now called Christian. And in chapter 3, verse 6, he writes this, Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow partakers of all the Old Testament promises. And so we are included in the promises through faith in the Messiah. When we repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus to save us, we can apply all these promises to ourselves. We are God's chosen people if we belong to Christ. So that's how you should read Zechariah. Read these first as promises for a great future for Israel, but then apply these promises to yourself as well. Now back to our question. How can you be sure that you are included in this group called God's people? What has to happen for you to be part of this group? Or to put it in the context of Zechariah, what has God done in order to ensure that there can even be a group called God's people? Or what obstacles needed to be removed for you to be considered a child of God? If I were to answer these questions with two words, it would be the gospel. The way you become a child of God is through the gospel. The thing that God has done to rescue sinners is the gospel. The way that God dealt with the obstacles is the gospel. And so what we need to hear from Zechariah today is the gospel. But you might say, you know, we're in the Old Testament, Pastor, and the gospel is in the New Testament. Well, if you've been following along in our series, you have come to realize that the gospel is, in fact, in the Old Testament as well. While the New Testament introduces the gospel in the gospels, and the letters explain and apply the gospel as they look back to the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament always is looking ahead to the gospel. It's awaiting the coming of the Savior, the one who will bring the gospel into, in, into full being, into full bloom. 
And so for you who are doing the Bible reading plan with us this year, and just let me say, I'm encouraged to say how many people keep on taking those sheets. We keep on putting more out every week, and they keep on being taken. So I know a number of you are, are reading through the Bible this year on, on that particular plan. But for you who are doing that plan, and you're in Genesis, and you're in Psalms, you're also in Matthew and in Acts right now as well, but if you're in Genesis and Psalms, make it a point as you read those to look for pointers to Christ, to look for the gospel, look for, for, for places that look ahead and that prefigure Christ. I know in, in Zechariah it happens a lot. Charles Feinberg says, Zechariah dwells on the person and work of Christ more fully than all of the minor prophets together. So Zechariah really is a Christ-centered prophecy, Christ-centered book. So I thought that's what we would do today too, that we would dwell on the person and work of Christ. And I want to do that mainly just from one chapter in Zechariah, and that's the chapter that we had read for us there in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is included in those first six chapters. Remember I said those are sort of those bizarre visions of Zech that Zechariah has? But in the symbols there, in that vision we learn about the obstacle that needs to be overcome in order for people to become part of this group known as God's people. So what does Zechariah see? So if you're, not, if you're still there in, in Zechariah 3, good. If you close your Bible, please go back to that so you can follow along. And just incidentally, there are, we do have some Bibles who didn't bring one along that are in some of the chairs in front of you, so look down your row and... Uh, find Zechariah just before you get to the New Testament. You'll see that second to last book. But let's read from Ezekiel, or sorry, Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And so there we get introduced to the characters in this vision. We have a high priest. His name is Joshua, who we met last week in, in Haggai as well. So we have the high priest, we have the angel of the Lord, and in verse 2 you'll see that he, this angel of the Lord is, is the Lord, because in, in verse 2 it just says the Lord said to Satan. And then we have Satan. So we have Joshua, we have an angel who is the Lord, manifestation of the Lord, and then we have, um, we have Satan as well. Joshua, the Lord, and Satan. So what's going on here? Well, since this is a vision, you have to kind of think in terms of pictures and representations. And so we have to kind of start to think, what's the point of this vision? Well, in verse 1, we see that Satan is there to accuse the high priest. Accusing is what Satan does. It's what his name means. He's the accuser, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, calls him in one place. So what's he accusing the priest of? Well, in the context of the whole chapter, it's likely that he is there to declare that this high priest is unworthy to be able to stand before the Lord. That's what high priests did. They, they stood before the Lord to atone for the sins of the people. They were the mediators between the people, the Israelites, and God. They actually represented the people before God. And so Satan is accusing the high priest of being unworthy to fill, fulfill his role as the priest. And because the priest represents Israel, he's saying that all of Israel is unworthy to stand before the Lord, to stand before God. There's an obstacle in the way. There's something about Israel that makes them unworthy. That's what we learn in verse 1. That's the setting. 
But the first sign of the gospel, of gospel truth comes in verse 2, where we start to see the beginnings of the gospel. For the rest of the vision, the Lord does the talking, with the exception of verse 5, where, where Zechariah himself pipes in just to kind of reinforce what God says. But you'll notice here that Satan doesn't say anything. He gets rebuked in verse 2, and he's off the scene. And the high priest says nothing the entire time. God is the main actor here. He is decisive in whatever is going to happen. It's his word that will be final. And so we start to see God's authority there already in verse 2, where he tells Satan twice, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And Satan is silent. So why is it that God rebuked Satan? Satan surely had every reason to rebuke Israel. They were not worthy to stand before the Lord. But it came down to God's authority. It came down to God's sovereignty. It came down to God's sovereign choice of Israel. Look at the words there. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. These were God's chosen people. And in spite of the fact that they were sinful and they deserved the rebuke, God would not forget the covenant that he made with them. He would be faithful. The words at the end there, verse 2, is, this not a, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? They were in the fire. They had been exiled. Yet God plucks them out and he rescues them. He spares them from being annihilated. Start to see God's grace and God's mercy there. So on what basis does God rebuke Satan? Is it because Satan's claims were wrong? No. Is it because the priest or the people had commended themselves to God by their own good deeds? No. The priest is silent. Doesn't say a thing. Is there any sort of promise to try to do better? No. The only basis for God's rebuke is the Lord who has chosen. Amazing. For those of us who have repented of our sins and have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, never forget this part of the process. This is the beginning of the gospel. You are saved because in eternity past, God sovereignly and decisively chose you to be his child. That's what this text says about Israel and what it means for us as well. Ephesians 1, 4-6 says it very plainly. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is one of those biblical realities that we... We have no answer for. But the right question would be, why would he choose me? I'm like that priest. I'm like Israel. I'm undeserving. On what basis did he choose me? Since this all happened before you were born, it couldn't be because of anything you did or any sort of righteousness that resides in you that God saw ahead of time. It has to be because he chose you and he chose you to the praise of his glorious grace. So the right response to why me is to praise God for his glorious grace, undeserved, 
unmerited in your life. This is why when we come together on the Lord's Day, we spend time singing songs like Amazing Grace. That saved a wretch like me. Or Amazing Love, how can it be? Well, notice secondly back in Zechariah 3, the, the necessity of the gospel. We have the beginnings of the gospel, now is the necessity of the gospel. What makes the gospel necessary? Well, the obstacle that stands in the way is sin. And this shows up in these simple words in verse 3. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. If the high priest represents the people of God, the filthy, the filthy garments represent the sins of the people of God. High priest represents the people. Filthy garments represent the sins of the people. The issue, the obstacle is that you can't stand before God, a holy God, with filthy garments. You can't be in the presence of the king of the universe with filthy clothes. Those filthy garments need to be removed. Those filthy clothes, those sins need to be dealt with or else we will never be fit to stand before God. The problem is that this priest is unable to do anything about it. He's stuck with these filthy garments. This is the reality of sin. We all wear filthy clothes. Without Christ, we all find ourselves in this helpless position that the priest found himself in in Zechariah's vision. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one, Romans 3 tells us. Or, or Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, separate from Christ, having no hope in the world. Oh, we can try. We can try to please God. We can perform good deeds. We can have good thoughts. We can say nice things. We can help the poor in Haiti. We can... You know, hold the door open for a senior in the grocery store. We can love our neighbor. But all those good things, even all those good things, are stained with self-serving motives sometimes. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds, all our righteous deeds, are like a filthy garment. Or Romans 3, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. If you try to commend yourself before God by your law-keeping, you'll be found to wear filthy clothes because you can't meet up to the standard of the law perfectly, which is the requirement for God. Why? Because to have a right standing before God, to be justified in his sight, you have to keep all of it. And you can just start with the Ten Commandments and start with commandment number one and I promise you're not going to get very far down the list before you realize that you are a lawbreaker. So there's the obstacle for each of us. One day we will all stand before God just like this high priest was standing before the angel and he'll be looking at our garments and we'll have nothing to say. If it is true that we all start by having filthy garments then something needs to happen to alter that condition. Someone needs to remove that obstacle. So look at what happens next. We start to see the power of the gospel in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. 
Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and will clothe you with festal robes. After the helplessness of the picture in verse 3, where you just got a priest standing there, not being able to say a thing with dirty clothes on, those first two words from God, he spoke, are a huge relief. You see, in order for obstacles to be removed, God needs to speak. When God speaks, things change. How did creation come into being? You know, you children that are in school, despite of one of your, what some of your teachers might be telling you, creation happened because God spoke. Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void. Then God said, let there be light. In the very first words attributed to God in the Bible, he creates. Creation is dependent upon God speaking. And it's the same thing with recreation or salvation. We can go through lots of examples of this. But when Ezekiel sees the valley of dry bones there in in Ezekiel 37, how did they come to life? Verse 5, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. And that's exactly what happened. In the New Testament, when Lazarus was died and was in a tomb, how did he come back to life? John eleven forty three, Jesus, who is God incarnate, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth. Jesus spoke, God spoke, life came into being. These are representations of how God brings hope to hopelessness. This is how he gives spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. He speaks. And so when Paul describes how people are born again, how people are recreated, he goes back to original creation as the illustration. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, remember Genesis 1, for God who said that is the one who has shone in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When God speaks, just as Tara sang today, things change, situations are altered, transformations happen, people come to life, filthy garments are removed. This all happens when God speaks. And that's exactly what happens here in Zechariah 3, 4. What does he say? It says, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, see, I have taken the iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. The end of verse 5. At the end of verse 5, it then says, So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with garments. This is a picture of salvation. The dirty clothes of sin are removed, and the clean clothes of righteousness are put, in, put on, of someone else's righteousness. I've put a list of passages in your notes there of all the places where the removal of old garments and the putting on of new garments sort of signify this righteousness that is freely given to us by God. Here's just... One example uh, of the, on that list, um, Isaiah 61, verse 10. Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has ro- wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Beautiful words. In order for us to have any sort of standing before God, we need clean robes 
given to us by God. Notice again that Joshua does not take off the dirty clothes, nor does he put on the clean clothes. This, is, this entire passage pictures what God does. In order for us sinners to have our old clothes removed, God needs to speak and God needs to act. We've already seen how futile our own efforts are. But God can act to change our hopeless standing. And God has acted to change our standing. This whole vision is being acted out here to show us what God is about to do. Remember, he sends Zechariah to give these people hope in a time of hopelessness. And that's what God can do for you. The intention of these first few verses here is to help them see, number one, the position they are in when they disobey, namely that they deserve fire. But they're also here to show these people that they still have hope, that not, God has not given up on them. I pray that the meaning of all this has landed on, on you too. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you've seen the fact that in order for you not to be consumed by the fire, you need God to pluck you out. If you are a Christian, I hope you've been able to look back at what God has done in saving you. Not only has he, has he plucked you from the fire, but he has removed your dirty clothing. And not only has he removed the dirty clothing, he's given you new clothing, new garments. Do you understand that as a gift of God's grace? Our sins deserve Judgment. We don't deserve to be plucked out of the fire. Our sins deserve fire. Our sins earn death and hell. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Yet by his own doing, by his own doing, he has put on new clothes. And then he empowers us to obey him and to walk with him, as verses 6 and 7 say. But how does God do this? How can a holy God just up and remove these dirty clothes of our sins? What did he do in order to change our standing? How does this happen? What is he pointing toward here in Zechariah? Do we get any clues here? Well, go down to verse 8. Situation doesn't stay hopeless in verse 3. It starts in verse 4, and then look at verse 8. Verses 8 to 10. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, which is all the priests, Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. And so the high priests and all the other associates, all the other friends, all the other priests are pointers. Describes it here as a symbol to someone called my servant, the branch. Or in verse 9, he's called the stone. All of these, servant, stone, branch, they all refer to the Messiah, the Savior. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and do justice and righteousness in the land. He will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord will raise up a branch. I am going to bring in my branch. Sounds very much like who we know as the Savior, as Christ. 
And why will God bring him in? The end of verse 9 tells us, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. This branch will come in to remove the obstacle. And he is connected to the high priest. In some way, he will act out the part of the high priest. In some way, this branch will become the mediator, will become the representative between sinful man and holy God. Well, I wish I had time to flesh, out, flesh this out, this whole image of the priesthood from the book of Hebrews. But in that book, Jesus is called the great high priest. Jesus fulfills and, and supersedes the function of the priest by actually becoming the sacrifice for sin. He doesn't just bring the sacrifice, he actually becomes the sacrifice. He becomes that spotless, perfect lamb that is sacrificed. He becomes the substitute for sin. And so the Old Testament sacrificial is completely fulfilled in this person, the branch. Those sacrifices, that system is no longer needed. They were a shadow that pointed to the great high priest, that pointed to Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says that this Messiah will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. What's this one day? It's this day that we now call Good Friday. It's the day that Jesus died on the cross. It's the last ever day of atonement. It all happened in one day, and it never needs to happen again. It is finished. This branch came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And on that basis, he died as the perfect lamb of God. And through that death on the cross, God could remove the iniquity. God could remove the filthy garments and clothe you with clean garments. Just kind of keeping that image of dirty and clean, God provided a way to wash away your dirt, to cleanse you from all your sin. And not only that, he can now give you the clean clothes of Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect life. This is the beauty of it all. God not only can remove the obstacle of your sin, he can also give you the clean clothes of Christ's righteousness. And then you can stand before God through Christ, really, with his clothes on. His perfect righteousness. The garments of his perfect righteousness. Here's another way to look at it. Ask yourself, where did your dirty clothes go? The answer is, that they went on to Christ. And he paid the penalty of God's just anger against your sins. And where did the clean clothes come from? They came from Christ, the one who knew no sin. And on that basis, you were justified. That is love. That's the love of God. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? So Zechariah 3 is a great chapter that pictures what God has done for us in saving us. It shows us that he has a, he's chosen a group of people to be saved. It shows us that we all have this obstacle called sin. And it shows us what God has done to remove that obstacle, the cost, sacrifice. What it doesn't show us here, because it's just talking about God's end of it, is, is how to receive these benefits. What Zechariah shows us is that God has initiated the process. God has overcome the obstacles. But there still is a response required on your part, and that is that you repent of your sins, and that you put your faith in what God did for you through the branch, through the Savior, through Jesus Christ. Friend, if you are 
here today, and you maybe have thought that you could do enough things to assure your future in heaven, that maybe the good things you do outweigh the bad, I'd ask you to please consider God's word to you today. This shows you that you will never be able to stand before God with clean garments based on what you did. Not based on what you did, but only because of what God did through Christ. I pray that you would look to Christ alone, that you would turn from your sins, and that you would turn to Christ. And if you do that, God promises here to take away your iniquity and to clothe you with festal robes, the perfectly white garments of his crucified and his risen son. In Zechariah 8, God encourages his people to look ahead to the future. I have again purposed these days to do good for you. Do not fear. While the very best thing that God could do for us was to send his son. Without him, we would have no hope. Without him, we would still be dead in our sins. But with Christ, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you've been amazed, uh, made alive with Christ, I encourage you today to thank God for his son and for his grace and for being rich in mercy and for forgiveness and for removing your iniquity and for clothing you with the righteousness of the branch of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that just as you gave Zechariah a vision, Lord, that you have given us a vision of the gospel this morning through your prophet Zechariah. Lord, we thank you for the hope of salvation. We thank you that you have sent your son the, the promised branch of Judah, our Savior. We thank you that he brings hope, that he brings salvation, that he brings life, that he raises us from the deadness of our sins to the wonder of eternal life. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for closing us, clothing us in the garments of your Son, for removing the stains of sin, for clothing us in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.